we're going to be looking. I need this one on again. We're going to be looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 12. If you'd like to look there. Before we dig into that, I think a little history lesson is in order. You'll see why in a moment. Stephen Langton, probably not a name that's on the tip of your tongue, but he's a man who had a daily effect on history since the early 13th century. Stephen Langton was the influential Archbishop of Canterbury from 1207 to 1228. His opposition to King John played a significant role in the issuance of the Magna Carta, which is one of the principal documents limiting government and making representative democracy possible. The American experience might never have happened if it wasn't for Stephen Langton. But he also played a major role in something we've already done this morning and we're about to do again. Read the Bible. See, before Langton, the Bible did not have chapter or verse divisions. He's the man who separated the letter to the Hebrews into 13 chapters, and the chapters into individual verses so that readers could reference them easier. It was absolutely a brilliant idea. Didn't happen until the 12th century. Imagine if we didn't have chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles. I would come up here and open the book and say, turn to the letter of the Hebrews and find the section towards the end with that great cloud of witnesses line And we'll read on either side of that. And you would thumb through looking for that line, and it would take about five minutes before we all found it, and then we'd be ready to read. So those are enormously helpful, but they are not inspired. At least not in the same sense that the rest of the Bible is inspired. These divisions represent a good man's best attempt to divide the text into themed units. And as brilliant as Langton was, and he was, some of his decisions about where to divide the text are a little dubious, including the one we look at today. The division between chapter 11 and 12 effectively brings the long list of heroes of faith to an end, but it does so right before it reaches its climax in the author and perfecter of the faith. The writers told us, one story after another of people who endured hardship because faith enabled them to look beyond immediate pain to future joy. But the climax of this history of forward-looking, pain-enduring faith doesn't come in chapter 11. It comes in the beginning of chapter 12 with Jesus himself. Now let's read the first three verses of chapter 12. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, I mentioned the division that Langton placed there was dubious, but there are reasons for it. In Greek, the first word in chapter 12 is a conjunction that often marks a transition. And besides that, chapter 12 
reintroduces two main characters who went missing in chapter 11, never mentioned. We, in verse 1, and Jesus, in verse 2. Nevertheless, I think a more suitable place for the chapter division might be after verse 2. Now, for the sake of our study, we're going to divide these verses into three emphases, each developed from the Greek word kemai. That appears three times in these verses. The root kemai is joined to all kinds of prefixes in the Greek Bible, and two of them appear in these verses. Surrounding us, that's perikemai, is the great cloud of witnesses. Before us, the NIV has marked out for us, is prakemai, is the course we must run. And above us, that's also prakemai, is the joy that awaited Jesus and awaits the faithful. So we'll look at each of these more closely. In verse 1, the author says that we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. These witnesses are the people mentioned in chapter 11. Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abram, Moses, and the others. The therefore that begins the sentence refers back to our relationship with them. Now, the question that presents itself is this. Just what kind of relationship exists between these witnesses who have died and us who are living? That's an interesting question. When I officiate at funerals, I often hear people, almost every time, say something like, well, I know Mom is looking down at me, or I'm sure Uncle Jim will be looking out for us now. Now, assuming that Mom and Uncle Jim are Christ's people, do they really have the ability to affect changes in our circumstances? Can they act in our lives? A closely related question has to do with patron saints. Is St. Christopher, the patron saint of travelers, is St. Christopher really watching me? And is it appropriate for me to ask him for help when I'm in trouble? In other words, are these witnesses actors in the ongoing drama of our lives, or are they spectators only? If by that question we mean, do these witnesses affect changes in our lives, there is a lack of biblical evidence suggesting that they do. The Bible does not sanction asking the dead, even great Christian saints, for help. Now, having addressed that question, here's another we might not think to ask, but it's an important one. In what sense are all these people witnesses? Are they witnesses in the sense that they're watching us run our race from the grandstand? Or are they witnesses in the sense that they are testifying from the witness stand? I think it more likely that they are testifying. That is by far the most common way this word is used in the New Testament. And they're not testifying about what they see in us, but what they've seen in God. When our race leads us into hardship, persecution, sickness, uncertainty, they testify to us about God's goodness and faithfulness. They say, he never let me down. He strengthened me when I was weak, helped me persevere when I wanted to give up. 
led me when I was lost, picked me up when I fell. They're witnesses to God's faithfulness, and they call to us as we run the course, don't give up. God will help you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is your helper. Don't be afraid. They testify about the faithfulness of God to the people of God through the word of God. Now, if they are witnesses to our leg of the race, which frankly seems likely in the context, that is a secondary matter. But if they are witnesses, if St. Christopher really is looking down on you, you can be sure that he's rooting for you. He, along with Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abram and Moses and all the others, can only be made perfect, that's the end of chapter 11, when we finish the race. If they're watching, they're shouting, run faster. What are you doing sitting there? Hurry up. You can do this. We're waiting for you. So there's a great cloud of witnesses all around us. And the race we must run is set before us. That's that second KMI word. What do we know about this race? Well, we know, first of all, that running it will require effort. The Greek word here, agona, means contest, struggle, fight. The English word agony is derived from it. This word translated race. Don't be deceived into thinking that the Christian life is for timid clerics and little old ladies. Now, it is for them, but it's not for the half-hearted. So Isaac Watts, long ago, saying, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Today, I think we might want to alter that question to read, May I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? And the answer comes ringing from the gray cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, from those who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, who went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destituted, persecuted, mistreated. They cry to us, no, you must fight if you would reign. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. The only way to run this race successfully is, verse 1, to run with perseverance. Perseverance is one of the most important virtues in the Christian life and one of the virtues most often touted in the Scriptures. Jesus said more than once, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Not to the middle, but to the end. Have you heard the story of the Australian rancher who entered the, an ultramarathon in 1983? The guy's name's Cliff Young. 61 years old. You know what an ultramarathon is? He was going to run 543 miles through the mountains on the coast of Australia, from Sydney to Melbourne. He arrived wearing work boots and overalls. He had never run a marathon at all. But he had run sheep, sometimes for days on end. 
since he was four years old. And he thought, if I can run sheep, why not this ultramarathon? The other runners, they're all 25, 30 years old. They all have corporate sponsors, and they're wearing the latest running gear. They laugh at him when they realize he's going to run. They thought he was a spectator. When they realize he's going to run, they all laugh at him. When the race started, they took off like gazelles. He ran like one of the sheep on his ranch, just kind of loping along. He started off and was immediately in last place, and he stayed there for days. But then he began to overtake the others, and he ended up winning the race and the $10,000 prize. When he entered the race, he didn't even know there was a prize. And when he won it, he gave it away to other people. You know, I'll give it to these other runners. I didn't know there was a prize. <clears throat> and when it was over, the 61-year-old sheep rancher didn't win by seconds or by minutes. He set the course record by nine hours. You know how he did it? Perseverance. The young runners would stop every day, and they would sleep for three hours to six hours. After the first day, he never stopped. He just kept running. Aesop said, slow and steady wins the race. The author of Hebrews says, perseverance, simply not giving up, wins the race. You'll win the race if you don't give up. In the race set before us, when any person reaches the goal, everyone wins. It's not a competition between us. Everyone wins when any one of us reaches the goal. Even those witnesses that are rooting for us. But reaching the goal requires perseverance. And perseverance is more difficult when a person is carrying extra weight. That's why our author urges us to throw off everything that hinders. The original language reads like this. Laying aside every weight. That word was used of the extra body weight that wrestlers would shed before a match. It could also be used of a runner stripping off extra clothes and any excess weights. The Christian is to travel light. That means that some things that are not morally wrong may still need to be put aside. That we will be better off and enjoy life more and finish the race sooner without them. Humans are a species of collectors. It's our nature to collect things as we go through life and then to get attached to the things we collect. Not bad things, mind you, just lots of things. Things that end up weighing us down. The famous 17th century English preacher Richard Baxter put it this way. I put it on the screen so that you could read it. It is a most lamentable thing to see how most people spend their time and their energies for trifles, while God is cast aside. He who is all seems to them as nothing, and that which is nothing seems to them as good as all. It's lamentable indeed, knowing that God has set mankind in such a race where heaven or hell is their certain end, that they should sit down and loiter or run after childish toys of the world, forgetting the prize they should run for. So let me ask, have you collected some things you need to shed is extra weight slowing you down? Has it cost you even to drop out of the race temporarily? That weight can come in the form of possessions. But other things can weigh us down as well. 
politics during a season like this can become a weight that some people need to shed. Certain relationships that aren't morally wrong can still drag us down. Hobbies can throw us off course. But extra weight is not the only problem. There is also, still verse 1, the sin that so easily entangles. We went on a fishing vacation, Karen and I, this summer with our family. And once again, I was amazed, as I always am, at how fishing line can get wrapped around everything. It's as if you take your eyes off of it for a moment and it jumps off your spool and it winds around hooks, lines, sinkers, around oar locks and braces and tackle boxes, around everything except fish. (laughs) Often I look at that and I can't see how it's even possible for the line to weave in and around things the way it does. That, our author says, is what sin does Pride, envy, anger, lust, laziness, greed, gluttony wrap around us, tie us in knots, impede our progress in the way of obedience. When we're fishing and someone's line gets knotted around everything, I hand the whole mess over to Karen. See, I would just pull out my knife and cut the line and start over. But she has the eye to see where it went wrong and the patience to set it right. When it comes to the sin that so easily entangles, we usually can't see how things got the way they are or how to set them right again. It's just impossible. And the more we try, the more frustrated we get. We often make things worse. We need to learn how to hand the whole mess over to God. He has the eye to see where we went wrong and the patience to set us right. He will gladly forgive us and then go to work untangling the mess. See, this is the most important thing I'm going to say. We don't just need forgiveness. We need to be freed. And for that to happen, we have to wait patiently for God. After all, it's probably taken us decades to get into the mess we're in. And to cooperate with him as he set things right. The Scottish preacher and poet Horatio Bonar understood this. I lay my sins on Jesus, he wrote. The spotless lamb of God. He takes them all and frees us from the accursed load. And when he's freed us, we're ready to get back into the race. Around us is a cloud of witnesses. Before us lies the race marked out for us. And just beyond that is the joy that awaits the completion of our course. It was so for Jesus himself, the faith's author, translate leader, trailblazer, and perfecter, translate completer, finisher. He blazed the trail and he finished it. Notice, too, that he endured. He endured, verse 2, the cross and all that meant. He endured, verse 3, opposition. He knew the course set before him was demanding and would cause him great pain. But he also knew that joy awaited its completion. Our author wants us to follow the trailblazer. Look at verse 2. Let 
us fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, that's not just to see him. It's to follow him. By the way, if you're not following, you're not going to see him for very long. The NIV's translation really captures the continuing action of the present participle. That fix your eyes, keep them set. But it doesn't fully express the content of the verb that's used, which has the idea of looking away, that's the prefix, apa, from, looking away from something. A literal translation might go like this, looking away unto Jesus. If we're going to look to Jesus, there will be times, and there will be plenty of them, when we have to look away from something else. Let me say that again. If we're going to look to Jesus, there will be times when we intentionally must look away from something else. We'll have to look away from money and trinkets and toys, from other sins and our own injuries, from our rights and advantages. I can tell you frankly that if you keep your eyes focused on your rights, you will never see Jesus. But look at another person's rights and you'll find him there. The text says that Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. There are many obstacles on the course of the race set before us. None is more difficult to get over than shame. It has prevented many people from running the race to its joyful end. Shame is not just an obstacle. It's a fiery obstacle, like the ring of fire at the circus. Notice our author does not mention the pain of the cross, though that's the first thing that comes to our minds. He mentions it's shame. Shame, humiliation, the feeling of being despised, rejected, exercises more power over human behavior than almost anything else. And on the course set before us, we will encounter it. When we do, how will we deal with it? How did Jesus deal with shame? He despised it. He scorned the shame. Now, that is such an unexpected thing to say. We're so used to this passage, we read right through that, and we don't even think about what it's saying. He despised being despised. He looked down, that's the literal meaning of the word that's used here, on being looked down on. He shamed shame, refused to be controlled by it. Since we live in a world where sin is present and failure is a reality in our own lives, the one sure obstacle on the course set before us will be shame. Everyone must get through it. The trailblazer showed us how, by despising it. Until you do that, Shame will control you. Whether it's the shame of the cross, or the shame of sin, or of weakness, or of failure, or of rejection, we must get through it. C.S. Lewis wrote about shame. He wrote, don't you remember there were things too hot to touch with your finger, but you could drink them all right? Shame is like that. If you'll attempt it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you'll find it very nourishing. 
but try to do anything else with it, and it scalds. When Jesus knew that the cup would not pass from him, think of Gethsemane. When he knew that the cup would not pass from him, he drank it to the bottom for you and me. He refused to let the shame of the cross deter him. He despised it for the joy set before him. That's how the trailblazer finished the course, and it's how you and I will do it too. Now let me wrap this up by asking two serious questions. First question is this. I want you to think about this. Don't just pass over it quickly. Have you seen Jesus lately? If you are a Christian, but your soul has not recognized Jesus for a while, something is amiss. That's part of the Christ follower's experience in this world. And if your soul has not recognized him, then something is not right. So here's the question I want you to ask yourself. What have my eyes been fixed on? On one of Baxter's trifles, perhaps? Are they fixed on some pleasure or possession? Or has some person been so filling your vision that he or she is all you can see right now? That's the thing you must look away from if you're going to see Jesus. Second question. Are you aware of something, an extra weight, an entangling sin that is impeding your progress? You may even be afraid to look. Because it's such a mess, it's overwhelming, and you don't know where to start. You start by giving it to God in prayer. He has the eye to see where things went wrong and the patience to set them right. The eye to see where you went wrong and the patience to set you right. He knows how to free you and get you back in the race. So give it, give yourself to him. Let's pray. I pray, Heavenly Father, for courage given to us by your Holy Spirit to look honestly at our own lives. And to hand the mess over to you. and to shed the weight that we've been carrying and run the race. I pray, Father, that you will bring to mind specific thoughts 
about what you desire for us as individuals in this regard. Right now, into our minds and hearts, and bring them for the next few days. And with those thoughts, give us grace to respond to you. And I ask for this in the name of your Son, the trailblazer, Jesus. Amen.